Well, looking very much forward to taking us into God's Word today, an important passage for us to take a look at, and I welcome all of you, whether you are in the room with me, whether you're in one of our other rooms, perhaps the classic venue, welcome to you, or the Moon Campus, welcome to you, or maybe you're watching at home today, participating in some other place, maybe in our country, maybe somewhere around the world, wherever you are tuning in from, we are glad that you are together, that we are together, that we are one church in many, many, many different locations here today. So I wonder as we get started, how good are you at spotting whether something is real or fake? Are you good at that? It's actually something that's pretty important for us to be able to figure out how to do because there are a lot of things in our world today that are out there kind of to deceive you or to lead you astray or a lot of things that can do that or, or do do that. So it's important that we would have some understanding of this. For instance, you might take a look at a headline that you see, maybe in the newspaper, maybe online, and you're like, is that Real? I mean, did that really happen? I thought we could just do a little test here and see how good you are at this. So I'm going to give you some headlines, and you're going to go ahead and shout out whether or not you think that it's real or fake. All right? Let's go ahead and give this a try. Here's the first one. NASA installing Internet on the moon. How many of you think that that's real? How many of you think that's fake? Okay, I, 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 I was waiting for somebody to, to, to respond to real. Nobody thinks it's real. Apparently, you all think that it is fake. Well, actually, that one is real. That one's real. I guess that they use them or are going to use them to control like lunar um, robots. Yeah. So anyway, you, you're not doing so well so far. All right. Let's try another one. Gorilla learns to knit. All right. How many think that's real? How many think that's fake? All right. Actually, that one is fake. Yeah. Apparently, they prefer crocheting, but uh, I I don't know. All right. No, that one's fake. Um, Here's one. Street covered in chocolate after leak from chocolate factory. How many think that's real? How many think it's fake? All right. That one is actually real. And it is also real that uh, people were licking the sidewalk afterward. All right, here's one. Elderly woman trains cat to steal from neighbor. How many think that's real? How many think it's fake? All right, that one is fake. But only because the cat didn't need to be trained. (laughs) It already knew how to do that. No, not really. One more. All right, here we go. Chippewa man delivers tithe to pathway in pennies. Real? Nobody, huh? Fake? All right, that one's fake, yeah. We just made that one up. All right, well, whether you were able to discern, and we did sort of well and sort of not so well, uh, whether you were able to discern the real and fake in those particular headlines probably isn't going to be too earth-shattering because they aren't all that significant in the grand scheme of things. But there are some things in life, some decisions that we need to make where it's very significant. Just think of all of the different decisions that you need to make in life. I'll just mention some of the big ones. Things like, are you going to go off to college? If you do, what are you going to major in? Then what is going to be your career when you get out? And what about changing careers? How are you going to decide if you're going to change careers? I don't know how many people I've talked to who are stressing over, should I change? Should I get this job? Should I stay where I am? What am I supposed to do? How about where you're going to live? Or are you going to buy a house? 
Which house should you buy? Maybe you should rent. What decision are you going to make in that regard? Are you going to get married? When should you get married? Who should you get married to? These are all significant decisions that we need to make, and we need some measure, some way for us to to discern what is the right direction to go. And those are significant, but there are decisions that are far more significant even than those. The decisions that relate to faith are so absolutely essential for us to make because they impact not just who we are, not just where we are, but where we're going. And they aren't just things for today. The decisions just don't impact today. They impact eternity. What am I going to believe? Who am I going to believe? How am I going to determine whether or not something is right or wrong? What is the basis of truth? All of these things, vital, vital decisions that we would make that, again, don't just impact us today, but they impact all of eternity. It is so vitally important that we would come to an understanding and and have some sort of a, a sense of how we might find our way guided forward, that we would have some understanding of how we might discern where it is that we should go in these huge decisions of life so that we would arrive where it would be best to arrive. So today we're thinking about this little phrase, learn to discern. As we're talking about today, to learn to discern. Discernment is so vitally important. How do we learn our way there? Can you learn your way there? Actually, yes, I believe is the answer to that question. So, this was something that was urgently needed, not just for us, but also for people, the church, basically, in Corinth a long, long time ago. And there was a letter that was written to them to assist them in this regard. We call it 2 Corinthians. We've been studying the letter of 2 Corinthians. Specifically, we're in the final chapters. We're calling this series Strength and Weakness Part 2 as we look into it. Today, thinking about learning to discern. And specifically, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're going to be today. I'd encourage you to open up a Bible, your Bible app, some way to access this text wherever this finds you, whether you're in person, whether you are at home grab that Bible, find it, and uh, open up. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to be in the first verses of this chapter today. The people of the church were faced with some choices between what they'd been taught, the first things that they had learned about the gospel. Paul had come to them, he had preached the gospel, he told them about Jesus, he had planted the church, and they came into faith. That's awesome. But there are these other people now who have come on the scene. We've been talking about them in recent weeks. We've called them false teachers who've come along and they've said, you know what? We've got a better message than the one that you have been hearing. And the people are like, well, is this right? Or was that right? How do we know? Well, we need to learn to discern. And so there are some things that the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, gives to them to help them to sort of open their mind and open their eyes to how do I make this decision? How do I understand which way is right? How do I learn to discern? And so we're going to look at what he has to say to them because these same principles apply for us as we think about where we are, where we're going, how we make those most important decisions of life, all right? So that's where we're going. That's what this passage can assist us with here today. So let's go and jump into it. There's an outline there in your pathway notes that you can use or online. You can find those also on our app and and follow along. So the first step is this. To, To be discerning, we must consider 
the deep concerns. Now, what's that mean? I'm going to tell you. The deep concerns we see in this text are all coming from the Apostle Paul, and there are concerns that he has for the people who make up the church there in Corinth. As we've pointed out before, there are some people who have come into the church presenting themselves as wise teachers, as genuine servants who are there to look out for the good of the church when they're not looking out for the good of the church at all. They're looking out for the good of themselves. This is all very selfishly motivated on their part. They're subtly deceiving the people of the church. And because of Paul's depth of concern for the people, he's not willing to allow that to happen. In fact, he's so much not willing to allow it, he's willing to embarrass himself. He's willing to go down these roads that are very uncomfortable for him, to say things that he'd rather not have to say. But he's willing to do it, to put himself out for the sake of these people that he has this deep and abiding concern for. All right, so let's go ahead and take a look at this and see it here as it begins. Chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. See, he's, he's already embarrassed. You can get to tell. Yes, put, yes, please put up with me. Paul is a humble servant of Christ who wants to put all of the focus on Jesus. He doesn't want to put any focus on himself. He wants to take the focus off of himself. Unfortunately, what's going on here is that these false teachers, they're smearing Paul's name. They're smearing his ministry. And along with that, they're smearing the name of Jesus. And he's like, I can't allow that to continue. I'm going to have to step into this and speak into this as uncomfortable as it might happen to be for me. So Paul rather apologetically says, please put up with me while I defend myself and especially while I defend Christ. I'd far rather be taking you off into some new realm of understanding. I'd rather be encouraging you instead of going over and over this material that we've already covered before, but because of the direction that these people are going, it's important that we would establish the foundation of truth once again. So he says, I'll say what I need to say just so that you're not led astray. Why? Out of his deep concern for them, to help them to be discerning on what way is the right way. Then look at the motivation of his deep concern as he goes on, verse 2. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. See, just as an earthly father has a devotion and a care and a concern for his children, that's what we find Paul having right here because he essentially is a spiritual father to this church. He was the one who was there, who taught them, who shared with them the gospel, who saw them come to faith, who started to build them up. He nurtured them along in the faith. He is essentially their spiritual daddy is what he is, and he's very concerned for them, and specifically he's concerned to see to it that he says here that he wants to see them established in relationship with Christ, brought to their husband, who is Christ. That's the language of the, of the scriptures, is that the church is the bride of Christ, and that Christ is the bridegroom, and he wants to see them brought together. Unfortunately, these people who've come on the scene are threatening that marriage, Instead of seeing the church led toward Christ, they're working to lead the church toward them and toward their benefit. So it's looking like maybe this marriage might not even happen with these people here. It's kind of like you see it in the movies. You know the movies where you, where you see the bride and the groom at the altar? And then the pastor says something like, if anybody has reason to object to this union, you should speak up now. You know what I'm talking about. 
And that's always a moment of tension in the movie, and almost always in the movie, somebody speaks up and they say something. I didn't let anybody ask that question at my wedding. (laughs) Not a chance, because I wasn't confident in what my friends might do or what they might say in that moment. I knew my family wasn't going to speak up because they knew that I was marrying up and they were not going to stand in the way of this. Wasn't quite so confident about Carolyn's family, but, uh, you know, that's just the way, that it, the way that it goes. Well, here these false teachers are actively working to interrupt this marriage of the church to Christ. They want the church to have an allegiance, not to Jesus, but to them. They want their devotion not to be to Christ, but to be to them. They want the resources that they have not to be devoted to the work of Christ, but given to them. That's what's going on here, and Paul sees that, and he recognizes it, and so he's willing to speak up whatever that requires of him, even if it's going to be embarrassing to him. But just because Paul can see through all of their schemes doesn't mean that the church can't, the people of the church doesn't mean they saw through it. Look at verse 4. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if, they receive a, if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. That's a problem. Here you can see Paul highlighting some of the tactics of these false teachers. Did you notice it? Look at it again here in verse Four says they're not preaching Jesus, says they're looking to a different spirit, and they're denying the true gospel. That's a problem. And another problem is that the church doesn't have their eyes open enough. They're not discerning enough to recognize what's going on. So again, Paul speaks up. Now I get Paul's deep concern for the church in this regard. I got to tell you, I feel that same sort of responsibility, that same sort of burden when it comes to pathway that we wouldn't be moving off, that nobody of the church would be moving off into error. But it's a challenge because there are a lot of things out there that are vying for our, for your attention. Some of them are very similar to the things that are going on here in Corinth, where there might be a teacher who would come along and because they want to convince you that you ought to follow me, they bring them a message that sounds so appealing, like Jesus is all love, Jesus is all mercy, absolutely, and they kind of conveniently leave out the part about the fact that sin is going to be judged. Or maybe it would be that, um, yeah, sure, you've heard that from Paul, but if you're really going to find your way to, to to favor with God, what you're going to have to do is kind of do this, and they throw in things that are going to benefit them along the way. You kind of got to add this in, but you know, as we've talked about many times before, that favor with God comes through Jesus plus what? Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely. But there are these messages that were kind of swirling there in, in Corinth among the church from these false teachers. Those are some of what they look like. There are other distractions that can tug us off course as well if we let them. Some of those that you see in churches today are things like consumerism, where it's, we make it all about me. It's what you're doing for me. It's what I can get out of this. It's, it's for my benefit and really mine alone. Another problem is individualism where we are in it for where, what the benefit might be for me. It's kind of tied to consumerism, but, but I'm not so interested in getting connected to you or getting connected to the fellowship or engaging in serving or engaging in, in other aspects of the life of the church. Individualism is most definitely something that we see in our day today that is along this same line. See, there are plenty of people out there that are going to tell you exactly what your itching ears want to hear. And if we're not being discerning, they're going to have the power to draw us 
away, and you see that happening. But spiritual benefit doesn't come from fitting the truth into our wishes, but submitting our wishes into the truth. It's turning it around in the appropriate direction. And as our experience has shown us, it's not the only path that's left, but it's the only path that's right to follow after what God would be calling us to, the way that this church was established. Then Paul dips back, knowing that it's necessary, into some more of this stuff that's kind of embarrassing him. Look at verse 5. It says, I do not think I am in the least inferior to these super apostles. It's in quotes. It's, it's uh, not really believing that that's who they are, but who they're kind of claiming to be. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. This is Paul talking. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Now, it's interesting that Paul says that he's untrained as a speaker. But don't misinterpret that. He's not saying that he's not a good one. He's not saying that his message isn't a powerful one or that he's not a powerful speaker. Sure, there was that one occasion when he went on and on that we're told about in the Scriptures where, where the one guy who was sitting in the, in the window, he fell asleep and he fell out the window down a few stories and, and he died. Sure, there was, but there was only, that only happened once. <laughs> Besides, the guy comes back to life anyway. So... Wasn't that big of a deal? Really, that passage is about the dangers of falling asleep in church and about other things too, all right? It's not just, it's, in fact, it's not about that at all. You can read about the whole thing in Acts 20. That would be a great thing for you to do later on. You can look that up and see what that's all about. But when Paul says that he is untrained, he's just saying that he doesn't use the formal, stylized standard of the, what was the Greco-Roman oratory or rhetoric. There was this thing that they would study, and they'd study to learn how to talk and to reason in that sort of a style. And Paul's just saying, I'm just not using that style. There's nothing wrong with what he is saying. He's just not speaking in that way. Well, what's going on is that these false teachers, they probably did speak that way. And so they come on the scene and they say, well, look at Paul. He can't even talk this way that we can talk. So why would you listen to him? Why would he be your authority? Why wouldn't we be your authority? Again, trying to deceive and trying to mislead them and move them off in a particular direction. But Paul reminds them that it's not the manner that matters, it's the message. Or maybe to say it in a way that's a, a little bit more up-to-date or maybe a little bit more contextualized for us here today, we might say it kind of like this. If you want to make a great point, you don't have to use Elizabethan English. You can just speak Pittsburghese if you want. thought there might at least be an amen in that or something. Actually, in all seriousness, there is something to that. You see, you don't need to be intimidated by the polished or by the powerful people. Just because someone looks good or they sound good, it doesn't mean that their message is good. Because looks can be deceiving. Don't be swayed by appearances. I mean, even spam comes in a good-looking can, right? Don't be deceived by appearances. Truth is truth regardless of the packaging. And on the flip side... Don't be intimidated if you don't see yourself as being very polished. If you have truth, if you have sincerity, if you have a deep concern like the Apostle Paul does here, you're going to have influence. You're going to have sway in the circumstances that you move in yourself into, even if you can't talk in all of these polished sorts of manners, because it's truth that undergirds it. 
It is this deep concern, and people are going to see that in you, and they are going to be able to discern that you are the real thing, and the message that you bring must be the real message because of the nature of your life. If we're going to learn to discern, we need to understand and see the deep concern, see the lives that actually live according to the things that they proclaim. See where that is. You can come to understand. Also, if we are going to learn to discern, we must also consider the shallow motives. You've got the deep concern of Paul. You've also got the shallow motives of some other people, which can tell you a lot as well. The people in this case are these self-proclaimed super-apostles. And you can see their shallow motives in the way that they claim that Paul's financial arrangement should just disqualify him from being considered as one who has authority. So it kind of leads you to wonder, well, what in the world's going on with Paul's financial dealings that would disqualify him from having any authority? Well, what happened is that Paul basically just gave away his ministry to the Corinthians. Okay, what's that about? Well, let's take a look. Verse 7. He says, was it a sin for me to lower myself, in other words, to make sacrifices, to make personal sacrifices, in order to elevate you, to enrich you, by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. He says, basically, he's still living off some of the gifts that other churches had given to him when he went and he preached and he ministered in those places, and he's not requiring anything of the Corinthians. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? No. God knows I do. So Jesus and others had made it very clear that Paul was certainly entitled to be paid for the work that he was doing there, the work of a preacher, the work of an evangelist, the work of a traveling missionary like Paul is, was something that was right to be reimbursed. There's no problem with that. And Paul had been paid in some of the other places that he had gone in some of his travels, but he chooses not to be paid here in this situation. So you wonder, what in the world or why in the world are they criticizing Paul for for the, reason, for the fact that he doesn't require anything of them. It's like that just doesn't make any sense, or at least not to us. What's going on here? Well, you know how today that there are speaker circuits and people go out and they, and they speak and then they get a fee for the speaking that they do? It, it seems that former presidents are the ones who get the highest fees for speaking, sometimes $200,000, $400,000 for a single speech. Think about that. That's a pretty good gig if you can get it. I spoke at a church camp once, and my payment was free food in the camp cafeteria. That's what it was for me. What was going on here is that there were also traveling preachers. There were traveling philosophers who would go around, and you would determine how high a quality that speaker was based on the fee that they charged. So the higher the fee, the more that they were worth. Tells you a little something about my camp experience, I guess. But that's what they're saying here about Paul also. They're saying, look, here's a guy, he doesn't even ask anything of you. And so what must be true about him? Either he knows that he's a lousy speaker, 
or he knows that his message has nothing of value in it that you'd ever want to pay anything for, or perhaps that he's not even really an apostle. Of course, they never suggested for a moment that, well, maybe he's a humble guy who's generous, who who found a motive in something other than demanding payment from them. They don't bring that up because they're out to smear Paul. And so whatever he would have done, it it seems that, you know, even if he would have required something or asked something of them, they would have found a way to twist that and turn it against him and turn it toward his harm. If somebody's against you, they'll find a way. But Paul's not taking this lying down. Look at verse 12. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things we boast about or the person specifically they boast about, that being Christ. Here again, this isn't Paul serving his own purposes. It's making sure that the self-serving, church-harming, shallow motives of the false teachers do not prevail. He wants to be sure that the church learns to discern. So he says, or he just demonstrates his own deep care and concern for them. And he points out the shallow motives of these people who are in it for themselves. And as they look on, as we look on people who are around us, as we're trying to decide, is that someone we should follow? Is that a truth that is worth buying into? Well, look deeply. What's the level of concern? Are there shallow motives that you can pick up on here? Those things should tell us something along the way. And then one more thing here as well, and that is to consider the broad consequences specifically of these people. See, the church had demonstrated an ability to get taken in by their false teaching, so Paul's finally just like, okay, let me just lay it on the line, like he's been already, but he says, let me tell you some more about those who had these shallow motives. He writes in verse 13, look at it, for such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Why don't you just say it like you feel it, Paul? I mean, that's pretty bold, isn't it? It's about as clear as it gets. These false apostles are putting on an act. They're working for deception. They're nothing short of being in league with Satan. That's what he's saying. And just as Satan works to deceive, they're working to deceive. And then look at this as, as he writes, just at the end of verse 15. Look at this ominous conclusion. Their end will be what their actions deserve. These are the broad consequences. What does that mean? Well, if you're in league with Satan, then you might expect that your outcome is going to be the same as Satan's outcome, which is separation. Friends, understand, these are not people who are basically good Joes. It's just they've got a little bit of their theology just a little bit off. No, they're actively working to deceive the people of God. And the broad consequence is that they are going to be judged accordingly. That's what he's saying. Friends, it's a noisy world that we live in. There are all sorts of things that are vying for your attention, that are vying for my attention, and every one of them is influencing our spiritual core. You see, it's not just false teachers who come into a spiritual setting that have spiritual influence over us. Not at all. Those influences 
over us can come from all sorts of places. Yes, all sorts of people in all sorts of contexts. It can come from culture. It can come from even things that are not people that have influence over us in some way as they seek to or do draw us in. For, for instance, anything that leads us to believe that self-serving as a motive is a good choice is acting as a false teacher in our lives because it's urging us to move in a direction that is away from that which is best. That's false teacher. The same thing goes with, with pride and with lust and with greed. Anything that allows us to move our way down those roads is something that is a false teacher for us because it is leading us away from what we see in the Scriptures is absolute truth. But here's the thing. They can be kind of difficult to recognize for what they are, can't they? Sometimes it's very hard to see pride in ourselves. Sometimes it is very easy for us to excuse selfishness. We do it without even realizing it. It just happens. And it just speaks to sort of how much we've been drawn in. But it doesn't mean that we can't be alerted to it or that we're just slaves to those things happening in our lives. Not at all. Sometimes, you see, it's easiest to see what's influencing us by considering what's missing in our lives rather than what's present. I want you to think about this. Sometimes it's easy to recognize where we're missing the boat based on what's missing from our lives rather than what's present because sometimes we don't see the pride or we don't see the selfishness and so on. So asking, ask yourself what's missing from your spiritual walk. Imagine it kind of like this. Imagine that God is at the core of your life, which is, of course, where he should be. But let's say God is the core of our life, and out from that core are all sorts of spokes that are aspects of our lives. Now, all of those spokes should be touching the hub. Everything in our life should be connected to Christ. So ask yourself, one of those spokes might be something like having a burning desire to pursue God. So if you fail to have, if you don't have a burning desire to pursue God, the reason is because there is something influencing that spoke away from the hub, right? There's something out there on the end that is influencing you in another direction. If you have no real desire to be in fellowship with God's people, that is something that we understand is something that could, should be connected to God. That should be how we're living. Something is taking and drawing that spoke away from the connection it ought to have to God. There is some influence there that is being had in our lives. And you can just look at all the different spokes on your, or of your life. Things like giving and serving and praying and patience and self-control. These are all spokes that ought to be connected and drawing their source and their power right from God. But if we're having difficulty finding some sort of motivation to pray, that's not just for some unknown reason, there's something that's pulling us away. And we need to figure out how to discern. We need to learn to discern what is going on. What is it that is pulling us away so that those things are not actual operating characteristics in our lives? 
And what happens so often is that we just sort of sit back and it's like, well, that's too bad that I don't feel that way. But we don't do anything about it. We don't run after a solution. We, don't, we might say, oh, I just wish I would, I, I would do better. And so we try to kind of connect it back into God, but we don't have any understanding of what's pulling us away in the first place. And so it keeps pulling against us. And until we actually deal with the circumstance that is keeping us from having that desire to move back toward God, we're never going to have success in plugging it back in to the core. Now, it's not that difficult to figure out what these things are. Certainly, as we look at the Corinthians, it's like, why don't you guys see what's happening here? Why don't you see the deception that is all around you? They could have if they'd have opened up their eyes, but they didn't. They just sort of went along with the flow. There are plenty of things that come up in our lives that we have opportunity to learn from and grow from, things that we're pushed toward, things that we're encouraged to go and do, things that we're encouraged to jump into. And it's like, well, we don't do that. And it's like, well, I'm just, I'm not missing out on anything, not realizing how that itself might be the thing that that eliminates the, the pull away from God in whatever realm that might happen to be. But we're not discerning enough to see that. Or there are things that are going on around us, maybe in culture, maybe things that we just sort of fall into the trap of, things that we just kind of, kind of do. We look at the same things that we've always looked at. We read the same things we've always read. We hang around with the people we've always hung around with, and it's like, well, that's just who I am. We need to learn to discern the impact that influences around us are having. That's what these guys are missing. Paul says, I've got a deep concern for you. He's got a deep concern for us, that we would walk in the truth. And he's written what the truth is. We're like, well, I don't know what that really says because I don't read it. Right. If we're failing to be able to discern, it's not because the problem is so difficult that we can't figure it out. It's that we're not applying the tools that we've already been given to the circumstance at hand. So I would just ask you to consider, what is it? Where are those areas, as you evaluate, that you know they're not connected to the core? Where there's no real burning desire to to live that out or to engage in that discipline? What's keeping you from that? And you might not be able to completely identify, well, prayer isn't connected, and so this is exactly what the problem is. But my sense of it is, is you're willing to open up your eyes and recognize where the disconnects are. That one by one, those will start to tick off and those spokes are going to get rammed back into the core. It could be that there's one thing going on in your life that controls several of those spokes. But until we're willing to get serious about going forward with the things that we've already been instructed in, that you already know it's not rocket science. We're never going to find our way there. And we're going to be wrestling with, what should I do? I don't know that I can figure this out. This is a difficult decision. And sometimes those are just there, and I get that. But more times than not, the circumstance is that we're simply not applying the wisdom that's already available. I want us to be discerning, and you have the resource to get there. I just pray that we would apply it. What's that mean for you? What are the areas that you find disconnected? What do you think might be holding you back? Are you willing to take the steps to engage 
in those areas, removing the pull so that you might get better connected to Christ. I pray that you would. Our Heavenly Father, there are so many things, as we've said, vying for our attention, seeking to draw us off in this direction, off in that direction, things that are keeping us from you. And we come at it from a perspective of, man, these things are just really hard to figure out. It's just really hard to know, and it's probably not all that hard. The discernment factor is because we've hamstrung ourselves by taking away or taking off the table the things that could really lead us and direct us. Lord, thank you for the deep concern that Paul has, not just for the church in Corinth, but our church, for us as individuals, so much so that he has given us what we need to recognize his concern and to recognize what the truth really would be. Lord, there's so many things around us that have shallow motives that are working toward their benefit and we're just allowing ourselves to get sucked in. Lord, I pray that we'd be bold enough to stand up, to stand for truth, to recognize those who have a motive that is not for our best interest, but for their own. And that we wouldn't be willing to get sucked in and to be drawn off course. Lord, we want to walk the path that you have for us to walk. So I pray that you would open up our eyes, that we would see that we would learn to discern and that we would walk forward in greater harmony and fellowship with you than ever before. And it's all right there for us if we'll go after it. Lord, help us. Give us the courage and the conviction to go after it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.